0: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the Stars production or Diana Gabaldon. All views expressed are solely our own. Welcome to the Outlander podcast, where the men are kilted, the women are winsome, and the whiskey is neat. Welcome to episode 202 of the Outlander podcast. I'm Ginger, and I'm Summer, and we are in love with all things Outlander. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Now, Summer and I have talked before about the different types of meals. Obviously, she's the omnivore. She's the meat eater. She is pleasantly, pleasantly satiated when she has her meals. And I, as a vegetarian, also enjoy some of their incredible meals. For example, this month, I loved the spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice. It was amazing. Well, I can't wait till my next delivery. I think I've got one coming next week. I think I do no, what's, too. <laughs> what's so great about it is that you don't have to go every week. Oh, that's so the So you best. can turn it off for a week because I am not personally a huge fan of summer squash. So if there's a week when they're offering nothing but summer squash, I'm probably going to pass and that's okay because in the next week they may have something, something that I do like all three of. So, and they give you the, the flexibility to do that. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com/outlander. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com/outlander. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So, this episode Outlander fans will appreciate this. Tonight, we are discussing turtle soup. So, here for this very splendid occasion is our friends, are our, our friends, Diane and Arlen. Welcome, you guys. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, Liv. Love- oh, you're, you're so welcome. You don't even know. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you guys here. And since you've done the announcement, can I publicly, or, orally, like ear, A U R, orally? Go ahead publicly announced <laughs> sorry not announced congratulate you on your little bundle Thank you're coming you. you're coming you're coming bundle
1: <laughs> thanks we're excited oh
0: my gosh so i'm so excited you're ter- oh you should be you should be absolutely terrified is your dad excited oh my gosh
2: oh he's thrilled he's he's already bought all of the the very scottish themed oh. onesies
0: <laughs> uh, as he should as he should
2: yeah <laughs> So, we've got one with the clan crest, we've got one with the salt iron, we've got one that says Scottish Grandas are the best on the front.
0: Oh my gosh. Is he already planning on on coming over?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, he'd already booked flights because he wanted to come over for Thanksgiving, and it just sort of accidentally kind of synced up that the baby will be a couple of weeks old when he arrives.
0: Oh my gosh. That's like the. Oh, that's just like. You can't get better than that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Well, congratulations. I'm so happy for you guys, and that's just—it's gonna turn your life upside down.
1: Turn your world upside down. No doubt, no doubt. Oh, we we definitely goodness. have occasional moments of, oh my gosh, we what did we just do? <laughs> like, whoops, there goes the whole life.
0: <laughs> and then after this, you'll have seven more. I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> oh, I'll my be gosh. geriatric by the time we get through if I do that. So, <laughs> oh <laughs> we'll
0: my goodness. Let's get started. Okay. So, as I'll do what Summer says, she goes, and now it's time for our read along. <laughs> that sounds exactly <laughs> like her. <laughs> Chapter 56, entitled Turtle Soup. So, Claire is healing from her cutlass injury, as you do. She was going to have to use the penicillin. She was like really hoping not to because, of course, every little bit she used on anyone was any little bit less she had left. She has Jamie help her to prep the penicillin. She directs him on how to insert the needle and everything. And yes, it's supposed to go into her bum. But Jamie's not doing so hot. <laughs> she takes the syringe from him and instead inserts it into her thigh, because obviously that's what she can reach. And it hurt like a bastard. <laughs> Jamie had been afraid to hurt her. He just, he's like, he almost got like a, a not a shock, but he just, he just, he, he wasn't able to do it. But yeah, once I guess- go ahead back
1: in those days you wouldn't ever find out that you had a needle phobia because you'd never be exposed to it like you know if you're a kid around here you get a shot on your birthday or whatever regularly this is a thing that occurs but you know it's very different from the kind of thing that jamie's and you know been involved with as far as causing harm to people and it's his
0: sweetheart Number one, that's a very good point. I, I didn't even think about the whole different time scenario. But number two, is there a cat around you? There, there is. is. She's oh, my God. I hear this. She insists it sounds like an alien. Right now. I hear yep. this.
2: Yeah, it's Kyle. Oh
0: my, oh, my God. Your cats. Well, And your dog. I don't care. Your menagerie is just like, <laughs> I, I just want to get on the floor and have them climb on top of me. That, that sounds really bad if you don't know what I'm talking about. She, They have, what, two dogs and three cats? Yep yeah oh my gosh and they yeah. are they're, lovely. Uh, they're the most friendly they're lovey-dovey menagerie uh, every single one of them is just little loves and um oh well i An i like this. guests yeah <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> your troop keeps growing oh my right, goodness entourage
2: exactly well, I've, I've been discovering when i'm recording my podcast um and I, I built myself this awesome little podcasting cupboard, but Betsy going up and down the stairs <laughs> is enough that there is no covering that noise up. So I just have to like take a pause, click it, and and wait till she's done running up and down the stairs.
0: Oh, aren't pets she's fantastic? Not their feet. Yes. Oh <laughs> yeah. my
1: gosh!
0: It's oh yeah. There's a Kiva always. Oh, she's okay. She's like doing the cat ballet, you know, where they put things over certain areas and lick things. And she's, uh, she's doing the cat ballet right now on the couch. So she's pretty, uh, she's pretty comfortable. She probably, she may not join join me, but um, she usually gets in my lap at some point, like five times. (laughs) Jamie truly didn't think he had a choice at uh, all those times he had brought himself into danger. Claire says, quote, I wouldn't risk being shot at shot and hacked at and arrested and hanged. If there were any choice about it. And he says, neither would I. He says, if he thought there were a choice, he may not be able to do it. Quote, you didn't need to be so brave about things. If you can, you can't help it. I like a woman in childbirth. I you must do it. And it makes no difference. If you're afraid you'll do it. It's only when you can, you can say no, that it takes courage. Unquote.
2: So one of the things that was kind of visceral for me in that chapter, when Claire is trying to do the shot and Jamie's trying to help her and everything, So I have had to do intramuscular injections on myself before and it's not like a tiny little needle like when you're getting your flu shot or anything and one of the things that mentions in that chapter is that her hands are sweaty and she's having a hard time holding the (laughs) syringe Mm. and I've been in that exact situation and it's like you're trying to get this very precise area you're injecting into and you know it's going to hurt no matter how carefully you do it and your hands are all sweaty and it's just so stressful and sort of Reading that really kind of brought me into that moment of like, she's sick, she's exhausted, she's hurt. She's trying to get this taken care of. And Jamie's like freaking out (laughs) about this needle. So that moment where she's like, just give me it. I can totally understand that.
0: (laughs) Erica B writes, this is such an eye opening revelation as I never thought about bravery and courage this way before. It makes so much sense. Our Jamie is a wise one. Joe B. writes, Jamie Fraser, who can single handedly take out a British gun crew, can't give a penicillin shot, <laughs> as is often as is often the case in fiction. I don't know about real life. Discussion of what courage is follows. I agree. I think I already said this, but I really like this. Diana's description or his words really made me rethink what courage is. I know I've heard it discussed as is what you do in spite of fear but I never mm-hmm. thought about it as a choice because if you don't have a choice it's not really courage is it because you have to right. do it you have it's to have the acting. you have to have the ability to say no oh that kind of gave me a little shiver
2: yeah I I kind of feel like there's the there's the courage that comes in a situation where you just have to do a thing. Um, you know, and and your only other option is, is basically just curl up into a ball. But the courage that comes when it's something that you could just run away from, but you try and do the right thing anyway, that's definitely of a different caliber.
0: Oh, gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely. His, the, the stuff that Jamie's been doing uh, well, throughout the books, all the books, uh, is uh, absolutely, that's a... Mm. I mean... The, fir- the very first thing, I think the biggest thing that obvious, obviously stands out in our mind is uh, his choice in the end of Outlander. You know, he didn't have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it obviously would not have fit his character if he hadn't made that same choice. But he could have said no. He and Claire could have been killed or whatever. But they had he, very
1: easy outs from that very exa- difficult situation. Exactly. And chose not exactly.
0: To take Lisa T writes, Claire's revenge challenge reminds us of her using the penicillin on Jamie after Leary shot him in the arm. While Claire is sick, it's not as dire as the illness was that Jamie had. And that's true. But I think she, with her experience, well, she had the same experience. I think knowing that they were about to go to the American colonies, even though she didn't, Diana, Diana did not write this, did not write this. But what she did write was she you know, she didn't know all of what had been on that cutlass, what the Portuguese dude had, you know, had had killed before, who he whom he killed before, what diseases any of these people had. had. Mm-hmm. Uh it's just, yeah, it's a whole host of things. And uh and she was in, of course, a different environment. Not that it would have been any any better in Scotland if she were, you know, stabbed or sliced open with a cutlass. It's just as bad. But she's definitely here where, you know, the Europeans have not been very long. They're still not adapted to disease as much. So there's so many things in that. She's like, yeah, you know, you can't, she may not be as far along, may not be as dangerous as Jamie's was at least at that point. But yeah, Yeah. you cannot, you can't take any chances. Like she knew what was coming and once she was delirious and out of it, she wouldn't have been able to tell anyone how to help her.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, I was thinking about the revenge comment earlier, actually, and it made me think of how differently they their emotional mindsets presented in those situations. You know, when Claire had to give Jamie the penicillin, as I recall, he was mad at her. He did not want <laughs> to be saved. He did not want any medicine. He wanted to be left alone to die. And, you know, he, he, was, he was done. And um, whereas Claire is like asking him, please give me this, please help me, and kind of goading him, trying to push his buttons to get him to do it. And he's like, no, no. So it's it's sort of a funny role reversal, while it's still you know their personalities still really come through in both of those situations. Whereas Claire's just you know she knows what's right; she'll brook no opposition. And Jamie's kind of emotional, and will sort of wait until the in, until the rubber hits the road to make that
2: difficult decision. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also kind of interesting when when Jamie was getting his shots because he you know he had a series of them and he did not enjoy getting them, and he made a big stink about it. And it's this guy who will, you know, grin and bear it through getting his hand nailed to a table and, you know, use his broken finger to keep himself awake, but God forbid he gets a tiny little shot in his bum. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, it's but so I think
1: the saying something to us there, maybe a personal observation coming through.
0: Uh-huh. So true, so true. So Claire tells him about Graham Menzies, or Mingus, depending on how you read it. A patient in his late 60s. Graham was having a leg amputated. Of course, this is in the 20th century. He was having a leg amputated due to cancer. He'd recovered, but returned six months later, and the cancer had spread. She removed the spleen, and he had radiation and uh, quite a bit of treatment, And she was not willing to give up, quote, it's a lot easier to give up when it's not you that's sick, unquote. Now I've heard that a lot in documentaries and when people, you know, document someone's like final, their final, literally their final journey. And it is sometimes, it's very rarely if ever, I don't know that I've ever seen it. It's very rare that the family members are the ones who say, you know, you tried so hard, blah blah blah. You know, it's it, it, maybe it's time to back off now. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's usually the person who's actually suffering with it, who is the first, at least, to speak up and say something like, "You know, I just, I, I, I can't do that again. I can't do that mm-hmm. again. Um, yeah. I've already done this how many rounds and everything." But um, that's very, you know, you have to. After all, it's it's their lives, it's their bodies. There's that's a, it's a lot. It could be a lot to go through.
2: Yeah, I. Without going into too much detail, I, I work in the medical field, and it's uh, in a particular part of the field where people often they don't have a ton of time left once they start getting this particular treatment, and it's always very hard to see when we have patients come in who they're not thriving anymore, they're not happy anymore. They're they're ready to just kind of be done and let things take their course. But they continue doing it because they have family members saying, you know, I need you to still be around. I need you to get all of these aggressive treatments. I need you to, you know, do all of this stuff. And it's, it, it takes a lot of courage for those people to, to turn to their family, the people they love most and feel like they owe the most to. And say, I'm sorry, but you know, you have to let me die. And you just mm. have to deal with it.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I. it's rough. It's, um, I remember, and I was not, it was not family at all. And I won't use any names either. But I remember I was a, I think a sophomore. Yeah, I would think I was a sophomore at university the first time around. Because I've been a few times. <laughs> I've been a few too many <laughs> times. I took, um, I chose for some science course or a course that would cover for math or science or whatever, and I was not a science major, so it was a, available to all was introduction to astronomy. You don't, they don't really have any equations. It's more about, you know, facts and descriptions and practical theories than actually like any, uh, any equations at all. So it was very approachable, if you will, for the non-scientists. And, um, but I had never taken any class like that. That class rocked my world. But what mostly, <laughs> what mostly rocked my world was the teacher. <laughs> oh, and okay, I've been <laughs> I've been five eight since I was like a sixth grader. So um, the reason I bring that up is because I typically just because I guess it's human. I don't know. Um, you know, anyone can find any range, any one, any huge number of ranges of people attractive. It just it is what it is. I did find him attractive and he was bald, or at least it looks like, I don't know how he got bald or when he was, I don't know. All I knew was he had no hair and that was, you know, whatever, that's fine. And he had, um, he was like 36, I believe. And I was like 19, which is actually not a bad age. I'm just kidding. So, um, he, (laughs) so anyway, he, he was our teacher. He's our professor and he was kind of a tiny guy. Not, I don't know, probably not, definitely not tall, maybe, maybe five, nine, but definitely not taller than me. So probably five, eight or something like that. So, and I typically find myself attracted to much taller guys, just because I'm not, you know, the shortest, tiniest person. So I, you know, you just, whatever. That's just my want, typically. Well, this guy, I was just, it was, and he was not bad looking at all. He wasn't like a model, but he just definitely was not bad looking, but he just, his charisma and his knowledge and his brains, oh my gosh, so (laughs) bloody attractive, right? So you're like, oh, oops, I hit the thing again. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that one in. <laughs> so, so we had class and I, I ended up getting A in the class or so whatever. So you could tell how much I was motivated. Um, all. um so we come to, uh, Thanksgiving break and at university, we, we had classes Monday, Tuesday, and then we had Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off. So you, if you have, if you have Monday Wednesday and Tuesday, Thursday classes, you have one meeting of each. I think it was the Tuesday, Thursday class. So we go into class on the, on the day. And it was like first thing in the morning, like eight o'clock class or whatever. And there was this different guy there. And I was all confused. Like, you know, who's this, who's this, you know, who's this dude? Well, once everybody got in and calmed down or settled down, not calmed down, he uh, wrote his name on the board and he explained who he was. He said, I am professor. I don't even, and I, I do not remember his name at all. He's like, my name, I'm professor. So-and-so. And, um, I, I, I'm your new teacher. And we're like, wait, what? Like literally from the week before to that day, there was no time off. There was no substitutes. It was literally the last Thursday or the last day of the last week that we had class was our professor. And then the next week, the first day was this new guy. And he's like, I'll be taking over your class. And we're like, excuse me. And he said, professor so-and-so has, uh, has, is, is, is sick. And he's going to he went to stay with his family and we're like, Oh, okay. You know, it just, you know, whatever things happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned in the coming weeks kind of asking around cause I had, I had friends who were in a friend who worked for the university. She found out some stuff and all this stuff. So anyway, I found out that he had had leukemia. I don't know how many, a year or two or three before, and he had gone through all the treatments and he was in remission. Well, he had gone in for a checkup like post remission checkup and it was back. Mm -hmm. And the reason he was bald is because he had gone through chemo. Now, I don't know how long before, I don't know if he just kept shaving his head because he he liked the look. I have no idea, but he was like the most energetic person ever. So he didn't look like he was run down. So I'm guessing to be in remission means you're probably a little bit away from chemo because you have to have chemo and then you have to wait a bit before they can call that. Mm -hmm. Um, from what I understand. So, this we finished the, the semester with the new professor. It was only like what a month left, less than a month left. So it wasn't that long, like three weeks maybe. And then um, I was a mu- music manager. I will say that. Uh, and I remember being in a choir in the spring. There was a note one day. We had our, our music department had a note board, and they had a big cork board next to the elevator in our um in the in the building. And what you could do is you could leave a note and you know pin a note up for someone. So whenever you come through, you just look at the at the board. One day in, I think it was January or late, or late January, I come in through the building and I walk by the elevator and I see my, and a note with my name on it. So I pick it up and it's this email from this professor who, is, who, our professor, he had written this email. It was long. We're talking like typed out like 10 pages long. It was long. Oh. And it was an email that he had prepared and asked them to send out in the event of his death. And he and they sent it out not to students, they sent it out to the faculty. But my friend worked for the st- or fa- and staff. My friend worked there, and she knew how how much I was missing this teacher, and um, and then I and that's how I found out our women's choir was singing the Dvorak Requiem. Oh. I found out, and I folded the papers up and put them inside my thing, and I still have those papers inside my uh, Dvořák Requiem libretto today. Wow. Yeah. He had not wanted to go through it again. So when he left, he went to go spend the, spend the rest of his time with his family. And I was so, Oh, I was a ball of tear. Oh, it was ridiculous. I, it was just a shock, right? Cause you kind of expected, but you don't know what to expect cause you don't have much information. So anyway, all of that, I, I can totally understand. This was this man who, who was like, I mean, who knows how, how much it had spread. I have no idea. But this man who was our teacher and, like, you know, he very bouncy, energetic guy. So for him to make that decision, like, that quickly and, like, literally not even finish the rest of his classes for, like, three weeks, it must have been pretty far along for yeah. him to, to make that decision. It's like not only – I mean, he could have made the decision that he didn't want to do it even if he were not very far along. But obviously you respect that, but mm-hmm. holy dang. So, um, yeah, I, I still – I oh yeah I still think of him I really do so oh that's a whole other topic but um sorry to digress so much but um I really do have since I was a music major I was doing my I had a junior and senior um, recital and my junior recital maybe I was a junior must have been a junior I take it back I was a junior not not a sophomore so I was doing my junior recital and I asked my voice professor if I could dedicate a song to him so here's the funny part not so funny she found a song called The Astronomers. Oh, and it was very short, it was like a one pager and had like two or three lines. And it was literally called The Astronomers, an Epitaph.
2: Oh, that's sweet. So
0: and it was um, one of my favorite lines from poetry is, I have loved the stars too fondly to be afraid of the night mm-hmm. by Sarah Williams. And it's from a poem called The Old Astronomer and his something. I'm going to have to look that up. But yeah. So by Sarah Williams. So it's it's a it's a it's American music, 20th century American music, which is not everyone's cup of tea, but uh it was so weird how that worked out. So anyway, I can feel what this um this man is. I can understand what he, what he's feeling.
1: I think experiencing those kind of connections with people who are going through the end of their life is really powerful and it sticks with us and I think a huge part of that is that it's not something that we experience in our culture, in our Western, you know, Anglo-Saxon American culture. We, you know, we see people get sick and then either they get better or they go away to the hospital and we don't see them again. And mm. so so having to be with someone, you know, whether it's physically or just being emotionally tied to someone who's who's going through the end of their life and finally get to that point where they're like, I accept that I am done and Mm. I'm ready and I'm not afraid and this is what's coming and and I'm okay. I don't think most of us ever really get to be a part of that stage in someone's life. And it's almost kind of weird that we miss out on that by choice. But, you know, reading this story, you can really see, and hearing your story, you can see why that's something that would just stay in your mind forever because you know whether it's a comforting sense, like well, when my turn comes, maybe I will feel that way too, and it'll be I will feel okay because I'll know it's time. Or whether it's just a sadness and a you know it's a shame that it ever has to come to that, but it's powerful.
2: You know, one of the things I I liked in this little bit is you know Claire manages to kind of bring things full circle. Um, you know, talking about. How she couldn't you know really give the shot herself because she was upset and freaked out, and he had to help her with that, you know he was the one that was suffering, he was the one that was confident about it, but it also sort of brings up this theme that we've had throughout all of the books about people suffering and kind of being done with it. It takes us back to um when when Claire helps column when he decides that it's time for him to be done. Um, Mm. And, you know, Jamie was really upset with her about that. But then we've also seen other things like during the boar hunt where, you know, Claire and Dougal have that moment where she unwraps that tourniquet because she's like, he can either bleed out right now or he can die from a gut wound that's going to be weeks of suffering. Mm. And there's sort of that... It, it, it's almost a, a pairing of the brutality pe- that people suffer in the past with the, the lack of medical care and and kind of bringing it full circle around to the future where there are still situations where someone's just kind of ready to be done and Claire's kind of using that as, as this method to kind of connect with Jamie over it.
1: Yeah, I think these books... I mean, Diana's a very earthy writer. She doesn't shy away from anything. I think... She really wants to delve into every little corner of the human experience. And for that, it means writing about some really hard, complicated, weird, you know, morally ambiguous things. But um, I think it kind of it it really shows us what Diana's personality is like as the writer that, you know, sh- she said in talks and things that she wants to put her characters through like the hardest things imaginable in a way just to see well what is she going to do what's Claire going to do with with this or what's Jamie going to do with this because it's almost a, a weird way to get to know more about who they are as characters by presenting them with these frankly pretty awful traumatic experiences you know
0: yeah. I remember at the, at the fan event, I mean, I say first, I, I honestly, I I think that was the only fan event, official fan event they did. And I remember, well, they announced it in 2013 and it was in January of one in LA. I think mm. that was when, that was like the first time that the semi public got to see Sam and Katrina, like together with, with yes. the, with the producers and, and Diana and Diana said, and some, some fans, like I was there, some fans, like, cringed i ate it up because it is typical diana and it's also we i mean duh if you've read the books you know this is this is no surprise D- diana was asked what do you most look forward to and she was like well i can't wait to see how how he handles the rape and the torture oh yes yeah. <laughs> people were like oh diana and i was like oh, it was hilarious and i know that sounds awful because it's rape and torture are not funny yeah but she got some if, heat for that know, as i recall I I think she did. I think she did, and I don't know, but I'd be surprised to see if the per if the people, or the entity that gave her the heat had read the books.
1: For sure, that would yeah. be interesting to know. Um, it's it's funny. One of the things that's always stuck with me the most that she's said at several of her talks is that people kind of tend to forget that she is all of the characters, and that doesn't just mean Claire. That doesn't just mean Jamie. That she is as much Black Jack Randall as she is Claire, mm-hmm. and. That she's fascinated by all parts of this. Otherwise, why would she devote, you know, however many books and novellas and short stories and essays and lectures to exploring them? So I think you can't... I think she's the kind of person that doesn't want to look away from any of that, even if it's uncomfortable or emotional or upsetting. Because it's, it's sort of human as experimental subject or, you know, something to dissect and analyze. Mm-hmm. And she's a scientist, you know, first before any of this
2: she was a scientist so i i think as a person and as an author she is definitely a student of the human psyche and and she likes to experiment with her characters and put them in increasingly difficult situations and you know when she discovers well they can make it through that then it opens up the door well let's put them in something even tougher let's put them in even more hot water and one of the other things I think and this may not make it into the podcast.
1: <laughs> I just guaranteed that it will by saying that. I think
2: <laughs> anyone who has read the books is keenly aware that a lot of what goes on in these books is like her own personal fanfic to put in her spank bank. <laughs>
0: That has to stay in, you know that. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've never I've never I, heard spake bank <laughs> <laughs> and I I don't
2: say it in like an insulting way, but she definitely no. like she obviously has this very intense relationship with these characters. And of course she would be looking forward to not just the like sexy sex times that that comes with that particular scene, but like seeing how her characters come to life on the screen and this, like the first of the incredibly heartrendingly difficult things that she puts them through.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I don't. I don't think voyeur is quite the right word, but I just think she's she's got this curiosity about people and how they will respond to things. And you know, she, I, one of the other pieces that I took away from something she from a talk I listened to her give on YouTube was, she, you know, these books would be really boring if it was just. And Claire had a really nice life and she was very happy and nothing happened and wasn't that nice. You know, no one would read that book, but (laughs) we keep coming back. Like, Oh, what's going to happen next? Oh, who's almost going to die? Oh, who's going to need to get rescued? What is, you know, because it's compelling. You kind of can't. Look
2: away. But. Yeah, I still haven't read the most recent one. Oh, dude, we were we were waiting for Diane to visit to finish grad school, and so for me, I'm still living with the fact that he's trapped in the.
0: <laughs> now that may have to come out. Yeah, yeah, I think you don't
2: want. To that
0: explain. was a huge thing. You you just you would say that before after seven before eight came out. Yeah, people like doing like them's fighting words. People still have, <laughs> people still are, you know, not happy about that. <sighs> yeah. Yeah.
1: We'll get there. But okay. anyway.
0: So Graham chats with Claire. He was thinking of committing suicide. They made sure that no one else was around and she said she could help him with pain management. And she says he might have about three months left. He laments the cost of his treatment and his care. Now I got to stop right there. Oh, I am not going to make this political. I promise. But that makes me sadder almost than him dying. People get sick all the time. It's a fact of life. That's awful enough. But the mm-hmm. fact that someone who is sick and dying is worried about the treat the the cost. I'm so sorry. That's such a personal thing of mine. I.
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's unfair for sure. It, and okay. you know, you see people doing things like getting divorced when they're dying because they don't want their spouses to have to be responsible to their deaths and things like
0: that. It's just like, how it's can we think we live
1: in a civilized age when we do that to people?
0: But well, that part of us is not civilized. No, that's true. So the answer was that she would do it for him. So very canny, very cannily. She took a little bit of each prescribed dose of morphia and replaced it with water. So of course he wasn't able to get the full pain relief, but it was the safest way to get a big dose, which would, uh, kill him without risking her being found out. Now, they had discussed potentially using one of the botanicals she was studying, but there was no, no way of knowing if it were painless. Now, the morphia wasn't supposed, was already supposed to be in his blood, so that wouldn't cause any alarm bells when they did um, an autopsy. Quote, there would have been no trouble if I'd given him the injection and left. That's what he'd asked me to do, unquote. But of course she couldn't do it. She couldn't press down the plunger. Graham was able to do the rest even at that point if she had left she it would have been okay but she stayed with him and then a nurse came in seeing her holding his hand holding the hand of a dead man and she saw the empty syringe and she drew her own conclusions thankfully claire did drop the syringe in the incinerator it was now the nurse's word against claire's so the matter was dismissed except when the next week she was offered a job as the head of the whole department in a nice office away from patients quote where i couldn't murder anyone else <laughs> unquote you know what do they say if you if you're a troublesome person promote you, you're promoted mm-hmm. well, if not i mean i've heard something like that i, I don't know what yeah, the exact
1: well you, i've heard the term failing upwards used a lot oh yeah yeah like if you're incompetent at your job well here we'll just you know you, you can be in charge we'll definitely listen to you. Just stop trying to do this every day, you know, get out of the phones or get off of the front line. Just go over here to your nice desk where you can't muddle things up.
0: Yeah, exactly. Joe B writes this account echoes Dougal acquiescing to Rupert's request to end his suffering at Falkirk in Dragonfly and Amber. Mm -hmm. Martina P writes, in my humble opinion, she would have hated that job away from patients she needs to be caring for people and applying her medical and healing skills she would have been miserable and i cannot deny that it bothers me that this could have been such a large deciding factor for her returning to scotland that's true you know uh, that's hard that's harsh because she oh wow to think that if she were still happily and successfully treating patients she may not have taken her to scotland what does that say Yeah. But
1: we can't really, I mean, Claire never tells us that. But yeah, I can see, I mean, there have been a lot of points throughout her journey where when someone depends on her, I mean, it was the same thing with Brianna. When someone depended on her, she was there and she was like, I'm going to see this through. And the second she was like, okay, you know, I can think about something else for a second. This person isn't so completely dependent on me. Therefore, I'm going to finally think about what I want. But Mm -hmm. so if she doesn't have these patients to depend on her anymore, I can definitely see how she would think, okay, this is one less string tying me to Boston.
2: But at the same time, you know, at this point, she still firmly believes that Jamie's dead and he died at Culloden and there's literally nothing she can do about that.
0: A hundred percent. You're you're right. I'm glad you said that because it's not fair of us to say, oh, but 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 no, there is no but she had no reason to go back to Scotland. As far as she was concerned, there was there was no reason. There was no reason to go look for Jamie. He was gone, literally gone, but also gone at Culloden. Mm-hmm. So thanks for bringing us back to reality, there, Arlen. We've <laughs> <laughs> got that little bit. Now this was just before she took Bree to Scotland. She had extended leave, so so she not only. She not only got promoted, she got a long vacation. Dude, (laughs) something's backwards about this. Jamie asks next up at work. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie asks a very important question. This is what Arlen just we just talked about with Arlen. If it hadn't been for that, does she think she would have come back to him? And there's no telling. They'd met Roger in Scotland, and that's what led them to finding out about Jamie. Then she realizes she never went to Aberdeen to say hello to the city for Graham. Jamie replies didn't it trouble yourself, sax, sac, Saxonac? <laughs> Sexy neck. Didn't it trouble yourself, Saxonac. I'll take you there myself when we go back. Not that there's anything to see there. <laughs> oh. I know. I knew you guys would have something to say about this. So please, <laughs> let, let, I opened the floor to you.
1: Well, even then, Aberdeen was a pretty happening place in Scotland, but. I can see how Jamie having been to Paris and to you know all these great fascinating Edinburgh at the height of Bonnie Prince Charlie's winning streak would think Aberdeen was pretty boring. I thought it was lovely, but
2: well I, I think it's partially because he's not a, a seagoing going person. That's true. But a- Aberdeen especially at that point in time was a big university city. Um, and and there was a, a lot going on at that point in time. So, you know, yeah one of those rivalry things.
1: Yeah, I think Aberdeen, and obviously I'm speaking as a, a clueless American, but a clueless American who did live there for a while. But I think Aberdeen also has a reputation even now for being kind of an insular place. Like people from, from that area of Scotland are sort of different than people both from what you think of more traditionally as the highlands and what you think of more traditionally as the lowlands, and they kind of root themselves there and just stick around. Um, So maybe that's part of it, like, oh, well, these people are boring. They just are going to stay there and be happy in the sunniest place in Scotland with a beautiful beach and lovely industry and blah, 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 you know. But to people who are used to a different way of life, or to people like Jamie, who have seen more of the world and had bigger adventures, I could see how he might think it's pretty boring. But even then, I mean, yeah, the university was on par with what was going on in Glasgow and Edinburgh. Um, I'm trying to think. So Lord Byron lived in Aberdeen as a child and went to school there. Um, And I guess that probably would have been right around that time, (laughs) a little bit later. But you know, it it was a place even then that had a real uh, reputation as an uh, intellectual place. So, then again, Jamie's not much of an intellectual.
0: <laughs> not at all. He's he's. Not, I'm not going to say. Him. I almost. He's has a man kind of action. Of yes. <laughs> Erica B writes the story of Claire and her last patient at the hospital is quite moving. The poor gentleman just couldn't bear the cost of him being in the hospital knowing he had such a short time left. But without him and the aftermath of what happened, Claire most likely would not would not have returned to Scotland with Bree. And then where would we be? So Claire asks Jamie what he wants with life and with their lives. Lisa T writes, I find it fascinating that no one asked Jamie what he wanted. He just assumed his roles, his calling and let that be his guide. I think that Claire is the one and only thing that he wants more than anything, which he states in Outlander.
2: Yeah, I think that's a recurring theme throughout the book, that Jamie feels his duties and his responsibilities very strongly and that what he wants comes after that.
0: Absolutely. After they've found young Ian, he doesn't want to go to Jamaica or any English-owned islands. She asks about the American colonies. She lays out the positives. No one else would be hunting them. Sir Percival hasn't got any interest in him unless he's actually in Scotland. And the British Navy really can't follow him ashore. And the West Indian governors have nothing to say about what goes on in the colonies either. But he's worried about their primitiveness. He's convinced there are cannibals in the colonies because he's printed a book for Catholic missionaries that mention the heathen Iroquois that tie up captives and chop bits off of them and then rip out their hearts and eat them. Claire wants to laugh, but Jamie is dead serious. He tells her that he doesn't believe everything he reads all the while he's either handling or breaking open an orange. So I, that's one of the things that, that stuck out to me is like, it's so Diana. I I mean, it's actually so a good writer. So it's not just Diana, but when a kid, you know, she she keeps Mm -hmm. bringing you back to that orange, like what he's doing with it and I can picture it so well in my mind and like whether it's Sam or anyone doesn't matter, but, an actor in any situation that is having a conversation or a scene with someone and they have something in their hands, that thing becomes part of the scene, even though it's may or may not even be part of the script. And the way she described it is like the, what the way a really good instinctual actor would take something and incorporate it. It's just, it's fascinating.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's very much that if you take a creative writing class, one of the things, at least one of the things I got told was um, don't tell don't tell the reader how your character is feeling, show them. So mm-hmm. she doesn't say Jamie's uneasy, Jamie's distracted, Jamie is thoughtful. She just shows him like playing with this orange and rolling it around and looking at the skin and doing all this stuff to show that like he, his something's going on under the surface cuz he can't even hold still. And like he's always he does these things and twitches his fingers and moves his shoulders and there's all these little movements that even though really we're in Claire's head as we read these books. But Diana still gives us all these clues by, by showing us what Jamie's doing with his body as a, as a hint of what's going on in his mind.
0: Absolutely. Claire identifies the irony of her situation. Before she came back, she read everything she could about Scotland, England, and France, about that time in history. Isn't it funny that she studies everything except the one place that she could maybe understand a little more easily yes, <laughs> if she had well, read.
2: <laughs> and it's that thing where it's quite clearly, like, that's not something we need to can, be concerned about because Jamie is not going to be on a ship for that long.
1: <laughs> right. He would never, yeah. You know, and we forget that even though Brianna is pretty American and grew up in Boston and got this American experience, Claire is not. And although she has her English experience of living in the United States as an adult you know, she probably, well, demonstrably knows pretty little about what was going on there before the big events of the American Revolution that people from other parts of the world
0: know about. And like you said, Diane, Jamie's determined to never get back on a ship once they get young Ian back. Like, that's it. We're done. (laughs) So she brings up the printing press, how they could get it shipped to the colonies. Maybe he could make a living as a printer And he brings up, what about Claire? Well, she can be a healer anywhere. They will always worry about each other. But what's important is they can always love each other. Quote, I live a long enough time now to think it maybe doesn't matter so much. So long as I can love you. Unquote. Oh. Oh, smushy kisses. (laughs) Martina P. writes, What I do love immensely is Jamie's understanding that Claire will always be a doctor. Claire states that that Frank actually did not understand her the way Jamie does. He really never loved all parts of her. Jamie understands that her profession is part of her identity, and it is another demonstration that Jamie is indeed Claire's true match.
2: Absolutely. I I would argue with that at least a little bit, in as much as... Claire does mention that while Frank never really understood her having that thing, um, he did mention that he knows he could do pretty much any job and that he envies her that knowing of her purpose. And and while I think that, yeah, obviously Frank was not the ultimate match for her, he did try. Yeah. And And he did understand at least that this was this was her calling and he, 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 you know, he tried to kind of work with her and make sure it was something that she could have happen in her life.
1: But I think Martina's right. I think, yeah, he, he saw that, that she was determined, but I don't think he liked it. I don't think he accepted it. You know, there's, there's recollections that Claire has of their time together where Honestly, Frank just seems kind of irritated and put out. Why do you have to do this? Why can't you just be a nice faculty wife like everybody else? And, yeah. you know, why can't you get the dinner ready in time for our party and blah, blah, blah? Like, I, I think, you know, she and Frank had a really awesome thing going there for a little while before she left. But I think um, he had a hard time seeing her, like, as a whole person and empathizing with her her feelings.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: And who knows if that's because he was a man of his time or if he was just, that's just a selfish characteristic of a selfish person or, you know, we're all humans and we all have flaws. Like Claire's not exactly the most understanding person when it comes to what other people want herself. But (laughs) yeah, I, I think Jamie understands that because I think, you know, he feels a similar calling to, take care of what he sees as his people and, um, whether that's his family or the guys from Ardmuir, or, you know, he has all kinds of obligations that he can sort of understand. Okay. Well, Claire needs to take care of people too. And that's who she is. Mm.
0: Yeah. And her, um, not that he didn't respect it before, but when she is a few, it was before she goes to go, go on the, go to the porpoise. When she and Jamie have the conversation about her oath, things they kind of shift. He, it's not that he didn't respect her, but yeah. he's like, "Oh, oh, okay, you took an oath, dude. Okay, got it." <laughs> yeah,
1: because he was never in, it, in language that he really understood. Exactly.
0: And I said something, I think, in that discussion or in that episode as well, that from here on out, because it it's referred to in almost every book after this. I remember in Moby, I can't tell you where, but he distinctly he does not like whatever happens in Moby. I'm not going to say, but he does not like the fact that she's around because she's in she's around this from the moment she steps to the zone. So this is not a spoiler. He does not like her to be in any more danger than she needs to be. Mm-hmm. He will not and cannot. He promised he wouldn't. Um you know well he he only promised he wouldn't um beat her again uh, raise a hand to her, but he obviously wants her to stay put not because he's that kind of person. he wants her to be safe because we, we know that Claire gets in enough of her own trouble because she won't she won't, right. sh- won't shut her mouth <laughs> so anyway, this comes up again and again about her and her oath that is actually I would argue a part of the huge reason other than the fact that obviously he he trusts her and knows that she can ha- help a lot of people. That is the reason she can, I think, I don't say freedom, but she can do more, I think, than Jamie would. He still would rather have her be safer. Sure. But he knows that she's got this oath thing. And he's like, got it. You got to fulfill it. I understand. You're going to, into danger. I don't like it, but I respect it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it lets her, I don't want to say get away with, because that's, I think, the wrong language. But in a sense, get away with more, not because she's trying to, but because of this oath.
1: He understands. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, um, it's interesting to compare that to what he thinks about when she's going to the, um, hospital in Paris when they're living there together, because there's definitely times where he's like, why do you have to do this? There's sick people there. You're pregnant. This is stupid. Shouldn't you just be going to salons and gathering information and all that? And she's like, no, I have to do this. And he's kind of He doesn't get it and he's unhappy with her at various points in the second book. So, um, clearly Jamie has grown up as just as much as Claire has in, in this
0: time. It's interesting to see them progress, well, progress even more, even though he's obviously accepted, hugely accepting at this moment for, for a man in his time, from of his time, of this time. time. Lisa T writes, Jamie just wants to love Claire and be with her. This chapter contrasts Jamie's gentleness and love with Jamie's temper and anger in the previous one. Joby writes, Interestingly, they don't seem to consider France. It will be safe there for about the next 20 years, the revolution being uh, beginning in 1789. So Claire thinks of America as both a logical and practical option. At least now she does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the notion of the colonies scares Jamie, who clinging... To his dignity protests that he knows the differences between truth and what can be printed. America seems so different to anything he's he's seen, believing it to be massive continent of bloodthirsty natives and dangerous animals. Now, I'd love to see what Jamie Fraser would make of the animals we have here in Australia. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that would be a novel Watch wouldn't it? The bears Jamie i no joke i actually i would love that i don't want them to uh, well i don't know i don't know what diana has in store for them but oh oh my gosh could you imagine if they had to go to australia (gasps) oh my gosh that would be a whole other adventure he would not survive that trip (laughs) no 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 absolutely not that's too much i assumed
1: the reason they didn't consider france more seriously is because jamie says once we've got Ian back i'm not getting on another ship so I think ah. he's going, I am not going back across the Atlantic. I'm staying over here. Mm. So, but I don't know if he doesn't really say it that
0: explicitly. He just wants to be done. <laughs> that makes sense. America is a place where he will have to wrestle with many variables. Joe B continues. And I think he feels the lack of control or certainty at present. It takes Claire, her knowledge, the trust Amy has in her, her own sense of self, that she'll be fine wherever they go to assure Jamie that the colonies will provide them both a place and a purpose, reaffirming that true home is where they are together. Now, Claire is napping feverishly when she wakes. Jamie has some of Murphy's broth to feed her. He begins to feed her another bowl. So she's going through it like a, like a boss. (laughs) She asks about Ishmael. He's on the afterdeck, and they strung him up a hammock, a hammock, because, uh, you know, for understandable reasons, he was not that comfortable under, <laughs> mm-hmm. under, in the bowels of the ship.
2: Imagine that.
0: Oh, it's OK. Imagine that. Are, do you, are you guys watching American Gods? No, not. We haven't started it yet, but we both love oh. the books. So shut up. You have to. It is phenomenal. Is it? Excellent? Oh. Oh, my God. I wanted to go on about episode two, but I can't because y'all haven't seen it yet. (laughs) Darn it. Oh, I won't say anything. You got to watch it at some point. We'll talk again. Yes. Yes. Okay. So she asks what type of soup it is. Turtle, Jamie replies. And Stan, as I said last week, the chapter where they meet Lauren Stern his, his German, right? So um, it's in German. It's pronounced Stan. And so I, I can't help it. He's Stan. He's just Stan. <laughs> you can just dis- you. Anybody can disagree with me. That, that's totally fine because you're right. We're both right. But whatever. So when I say it, that's who I mean. Gotcha. Stan, Stan saving the shell to make combs for Claire's hair. Oh, how considerate. And Fergus is watching Ishmael on the deck. Lisa T writes, so begins one of the hottest, funniest in all of literature. I am daring Ginger to read from this point to the end of the chapter. It is, it's is—it's just so good. I would love to see Katrina and Sam in this scene. They have such great senses of humor. Okay, I agree with that. Absolutely. The reason I'm not going to read it, and I mean, now it sounds like like a smutty, a smutty line. What I was just about to offer sounded really smutty. If anyone would like to hear me read it, <laughs> to do I could is record it. But that... <laughs> Save sam- it for a fundraiser. As an extra. <laughs> that will cost... That will cost you 99 cents a minute. 1-900 <laughs> <laughs> Outlander pod. Jamie mentions that he's a wee bit firm at the moment in response to Claire's consideration of for Fergus being kept from Marsali on their honeymoon. Quote... What, were you sitting there with your hair loose and your nipples staring me in the eye the size of cherries? <laughs> Dang, could you be a little more descriptive, Jamie? <laughs> he tries to feed her some more of the broth, and she says, quote, I want to hear about this firmness of yours, unquote. He says, no, you don't. You're ill. <laughs> and she says, I feel much better. Shall I have a look at it? <laughs> He's shocked. He says, you shall not. Someone might come in. And I kind of think you're looking at it would help a bit.
2: (laughs) Which is hilarious to me, since Jamie is not usually exactly the model of restraint.
0: No. And he's
2: not always that worried about what other people might be thinking.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So she says that, well, he can bolt the door. And he says, what do you think I'm going to do? Do I look like some sort of man who'll take advantage of a woman who's not only wounded, but boiling with fever, but drunk as well? (laughs) But he still stood up. (laughs) (laughs) She says she's not drunk. He says, you can be, if you're eating turtle soup made by Murphy, it's got at least a full bottle of sherry in it. She goes on about the firmness and then she grabs the firmness. (laughs) She says, you bolt the door and I'll prove I'm not drunk. He turned to bolt the door and she had left the berth and was standing, though shakily, against the frame. He says, there is no way it's going to work. They will not fit in the berth and the swell will not allow them to remain upright. She suggests the floor. While he's thinking, she lurches forward into him. She helps him disrobe and then takes him, uh, takes him. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There's a knock on the door. He freezes, but she continues. And he says, trying to remain calm, I, what, uh, what is it? Lisa T. writes, I can't imagine trying to laugh at that point in the proceedings. Side note, there is a Lord John story that occurs around this time called Lord John and the Succubus that details Succubi even more. I'm sure that this is a reference to that. (laughs) Because, yes, because I think... Claire asks about right. Claire asks about succubi, or was that Jamie? I, I, I think, think Jamie he, brings it up because yeah. of you know her fever. Ah, okay, and she's burning. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's Stan. Fergus wants to know if he can go to bed now that Ishmael's asleep. Jamie says no. I thought that was a little mean of Jamie, by the way. She's uh, <laughs> been hard on Fergus lately, though. <laughs> just a little <laughs> bit. So uh, he says, "Stay where he is, and he'll be out to relieve him in a bit." Stan says that Marsali is uh, eager for him to go. And Jamie says, tell her that Fergus will be there soon. Then Stan asks about Claire's health. Jamie says that she's feeling better. Yes, she enjoyed the turtle soup. Yes, he'll tell her the shell was put aside for her. Jamie says, good night, Mr. Stan. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know it's for effect, but holy crap. He would not leave. What did yeah, he think? Was it, just makes you wonder
1: if he, it makes you wonder if he knew what they were up to. <laughs> like, maybe yeah, he's just no giving Jamie a little bit of a hard time, so to speak.
2: <laughs> but oh, I will gosh. just say that anyone who's grown up with a bunch of elder siblings has been in a situation similar to that at some point.
0: <laughs> anyone in present company,
2: Arlen? <laughs> I'm <am> the youngest.
0: <laughs> so, Stan seems a little... <laughs> Uh, then seems disappointed when he says Mrs. Fraser is asleep. To Claire, he whispers, Laugh and I'll throttle you." Basically, Stan just won't stop. So Jamie finally goes with the flow. They lower themselves to the floor and he pulls up her shift. And they're either going at it or about to go at it. But Stan continues. Jamie finally yells him a good night. <laughs> and they continue the lovin'. Afterwards... He puts Claire in the berth and asks her how her arm is. She says, what arm? Before he leaves her, he says, I'll tell Murphy you liked the soup.
1: Oh, I just love that scene. It's so funny. Oh.
0: I've
1: You know, I don't even know how many times I've read that part. but
0: <laughs> I know. It's just
1: such a delightful combination of laughing at other people's suffering. And we've <laughs> all kind of been there and... And yet, yeah, it is a pretty uh, charged scene. And it, I think it's got to be hard as a writer to be able to write something that's cringeworthy and funny and pretty erotic all at the same time. Mm. So,
0: Yes, good job, Diana. Lisa T writes, this scene is a delightful variation on Claire healing Jamie at the Abbey. She talks about his fever breaking. For Jamie, it was life, death, and his soul, as she describes it. Quote, I felt as though I were wading through water, thigh deep, pursued by monstrous fish. I lifted my knees high, running in slow motion, feeling the water splash against my face. I shook off the dream to realize that there was, in fact, wetness on my face and hands, not tears, but blood, and the sweat of the nightmare creature I grappled with in the dark. Unquote. So Jamie has helped Claire heal by giving her medicine, feeding her and making love to her just as she has done for him. This is one of my favorite chapters in the entire series because of the humor, the intimacy and the very hot variation on the theme of the healing power of making love begun in Outlander. Parallels to Outlander in this chapter ground this delightful, sensual scene and amplify Claire and Jamie's passion for each other. Eileen P. writes, Again, I want to applaud Claire's foresight in bringing penicillin with her on her time travels. Without it, Jamie would have died earlier in the book after being shot by Leary. Now it comes in handy to fight Claire's infection from the pirate's cutlass. Lord knows where that cutlass has been, but obviously it was covered in nasty germs. Three cheers for penicillin enabling Claire to survive her pirate attack. But wait! Not all the credit can go to the penicillin. Murphy's turtle soup is clearly medicinal, not to mention an aphrodisiac. Amazingly, its plentiful sherry has managed to be cooked without losing any alcohol content. I was wondering about that too. Claire is feeling good and frisky, but she still has a fever. Leave it to Jamie to break Claire's fever with drunken turtle soup sex. <laughs> Let us all extol the medicinal virtues of penicillin, Murphy's turtle soup, and sex with Jamie Fraser. <laughs> Sorry. I, see, I don't read this before. I just skim it to see where it should fit. Really, <laughs> that would make anyone feel better. <laughs> well, I don't know about Arlen, but at least me and uh, me and uh, Diane. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would like
2: to think that Jamie is a relatively good lover.
0: <laughs> well, and, of course he
2: is. <laughs> you know. I I feel like hopefully he's kind of a a, um, a a Captain Jack Harkness and that you know he'll make it worth your oh. while. I think she's
1: oh I think gosh. She's maybe suggesting that you're married to a lady and so it might not be your thing. It's oh, definitely I would never not have Jamie's got thing. that. Yeah, I know you're kind of thick. <laughs> dude
0: (laughs) Erica B writes I'll be honest not sure if I will make the drunken mock turtle soup from the Outlander kitchen cookbook well I'm glad it doesn't use real turtle the idea of using oxtail doesn't seem appetizing to me either I feel like turtle soup is a recipe you eat before asking what's in it (laughs) question for Teresa what characteristics does the oxtail have that is similar to turtle and how does oxtail differ from something like a cut of beef I have no idea where I could find oxtail around where I live
2: Oh, Oxtail soup's awesome.
0: I've seen it in the
1: yeah. grocery store once yeah. more. I've, I've read somewhere, I'm trying to remember where, I think it was an, in, in an annotated version of Alice in Wonderland I have, because, you know, there's a mock turtle in Alice in Wonderland. Um, or maybe it's through the looking glass. But I read something of that uh, sea turtle meat apparently tastes kind of like veal. Um, mm. So I don't know, I mean, I guess that would mean it's like a red meat, but kind of mild flavored, but... So I don't know if oxtail is part of that or if it's just because it's an easy thing to make soup out of. Or...
2: Who knows? Oxtail soup, and and I've had regular oxtail soup and mock turtle soup as well. And it's just, it's sort of very rich and flavorful. but
0: Yeah, I, I, I won't be able to try any of that. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll be your taste testers. Yes, you guys will have I to. I a um... copy
2: of Teresa's
1: cookbook. I haven't gotten it yet. I do love reading uh, her blog and her website, but...
0: Joby writes, as ever, Diana covers so much in one sex scene. It's empowering to women, passionate, funny. It's the second recorded encounter where poor Jamie has to maintain a conversation with another outside who can't take a hint. And it's everyone's new favorite way to break a fever. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't have anyone else make break my fever last week, but I also wasn't like suffering from a cutlass wound. So it wasn't that bad of a fever. So we recorded three chapters with Diane and Arlen, and chapters 57 and 8 will be in the coming weeks. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. We look forward to our next episode. Thank you to our generous partner, Zencaster, who offers high-fidelity podcasting. Check out Zencaster and use coupon code OUTLANDER20. Outlander two zero for twenty percent off three months or twenty percent off for a year. Connect with us. Visit our website at outlanderpod.com. Find us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Outlanderpod. We'd love for you to join our Facebook community at Outlanderpod.com slash group. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at OutlanderPod.